This is continuing coverage of the 2021 Convention of the American Council of the Blind. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon. This is the Audio Description and Museums session, and I want to make sure people know that the opening CEU code is 42078. 420 Seven, eight. Welcome to the second of an exciting series of sessions focused on audio description, brought to you by ACB's Audio Description Project. I'm Joel Snyder, uh, the president of Audio Description Associates, LLC, and I'm the founder of the Audio Description Project with ACB, of course, um, or the ADP, Audio Description Project, and I am its senior consultant. This is about audio description, and I'm, I'm presenting a slide right now with uh, mostly text. So how do you make text uh, that's visible, accessible to people who can't see it? Well, you, you read it, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to practice what I preach here. American Council of the Blind and its Audio Description Project in collaboration with Audio Description Associates, LLC, presents Audio Description and Museums with Joel Snyder, PhD, President, Audio Description Associates, LLC, Founder, Senior Consultant, Audio Description Project, ACB, with our special guests, Jessica Doonan, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, Charlotte Martin from the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum in New York City, and Robert Brady from the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum. Saturday, July 17th, 4 p.m. to 5.15 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. At the bottom, the American audio description symbol and um, a white square within which are two letters in bold black type, an A and a D. The left side of that A is tilted just a bit to the right and to the right of the curve in the D3 curved lines. Some beginning describers might go on and say something like, oh, they represent sound waves. Well, that's true, but you know what? Describers describe. We don't explain. There's no reason why people who are blind don't know everything that a sighted person might know, and there's nothing on the screen that explains sound waves for sighted people. So why add that? Anyway, a little bit about our audience, of course, and about audio description. It is a uh, real pleasure to have with me uh, these several museum professionals who made it, they've made it part of their work to build greater and more meaningful access for museum visitors who are blind or have low vision. I mentioned Jessica Doonan from the Museum of Fine Arts, Charlotte Martin at the Intrepid Air, Sea, and Space Museum, and Robert Brady from the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum in Colorado Springs. Uh, and I, I hope you all know, everybody tuning in, I uh, hope you all know that one of the closing events for this year's conference is hearing audio description while enjoying the opening ceremonies from this year's Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Is that cool or what? I'm gonna stop sharing my screen now so everybody can see uh, everybody full screen. I think I need to do that. In any event, 
Uh, I will let each of our panelists introduce themselves um, when they speak with a brief self-description and uh, information about their work when they when they share their remarks. Uh, and then I'm going to moderate uh, a discussion with some questions that I've prepared in advance. And of course, it'd be great to hear from you all, our listeners, with any questions or comments you have. I have a true story uh, for you. A blind fellow was once visiting a museum with some friends, and he was approached by a sighted woman who had the temerity to ask him, excuse me, but um, what are you doing in a museum? You can't see any of the exhibits. Well, um, he was taken aback, um, as you might imagine, but his response, I'm here for the same reason anyone goes to a museum. I wanna learn, I wanna know, I want to be a part of our culture. So the moral of that little story is that his inability to see shouldn't deny him access to culture. And I think it's the responsibility of our arts institutions, really all institutions that are open to the public, to be as inclusive as possible. It's about access to culture, and that is everyone's right. There simply is no good reason why a person with a particular disability must also be culturally disadvantaged. No. Um, audio description as a formal activity or service dates back to the early 1980s. I was a part of that group in Washington, D.C. that developed the world's first ongoing audio description service. That was in 1981, and the focus was on the performing arts in particular. But from there, audio description began showing up on broadcast television and cinema in about 1985. Uh, but as a formal service, Audio description didn't come to museums and National Park Service sites uh, until the 90s, really. Uh, of course, many museums had already enlivened their exhibits by including tactile or haptic experiences. Everybody likes to touch. Uh, but formal audio description services, sometimes called verbal description, came later. Nowadays, more, more and more museums are using uh, audio description techniques to translate the visual to a sense form that is accessible. Um, on the ADP website, by the way, www.acb.org slash ADP, we, I'll put that in the chat in a moment, we list museums and visitor centers in about 30 states that have audio description availability. Using description, you know, museum docents, you know, or guides, find that they develop better use of language and more expressive, more vivid, imaginative museum tours, and they're greatly appreciated by all visitors. And in this way, docent-led tours are more appropriate for the low vision visitor. And docents, they find that their tours for all visitors are, are enhanced. Uh, that lively, that vivid descriptive process combined with the tactile or haptic or experiential uh, elements enables docents to make the museum experience more accessible and more meaningful for everybody. But now more and more museums are interested in having a recorded tour specifically geared to people with low vision or perhaps weaving descriptive language within a standard audio tour uh, combined with directional information and making text available by voicing the, you know, the informational placards that often accompany exhibit displays um, those recorded tours enable visitors who are blind to use 
a simple handheld device, an audio player, or even their own smartphones to uh, tour at least a portion of the museum independently and with new access to the visual elements of exhibitions. Uh, sometimes museum uh, curators will include description for certain videos or interactive activities within an exhibit uh, as part of the overall tour or as a separate audio track, just as description is accessed for television or film. I do wanna to mention too, and I'll put this in the chat, um, two websites by a group called Art Beyond Sight that has done so much over the last several decades to uh, expand audio description for people who are blind and uh, introduce uh, people who are blind to visual art, to sculpture as an activity. Now, let me take this all a bit further though before I finish here. Um, whenever my company, Audio Description Associates, creates an audio described tour for a museum, we believe that our work and the museum's work is only half done. No, it's, it's critical for museums to reach out to the intended consumers of audio description. People who are blind have traditionally not been avid museum goers. I, you know, if there's not audio description access and, the, and if the, the facility is filled with signs that say do not touch, well, then that space is not particularly welcoming to the community of people who, who are blind. And remember the two largest barriers for attendance at arts events are cost and transportation. 70% of people who are blind are unemployed. So I think the most successful access programs are those that actively reach out to the community and perhaps uh, offer programs that assist with cost and transformation, uh, transportation rather. So with that, let's turn uh, to uh, Charlotte uh, at the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum. And uh, I've got her websites, I'll be putting them in the chat. Charlotte, tell us about the Intrepid, tell us about yourself and the Intrepid. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Joel, for the introduction and for bringing us together for this panel. Uh, my name is Charlotte Martin and um, for my self-description, I'm a very light-skinned white woman with long, dark blonde hair and green eyes. I'm wearing a blue sleeveless button-down linen shirt with shiny blue dangly earrings, and I have my AirPods in my ear, and I'm in front of a white wall. And I am the Senior Manager of Access Initiatives at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum in New York City. Um, I've worked there for over seven years, and one of my favorite things about it is that unlike most other museums, the Intrepid is based not in a building, but on a ship, the former U.S. Navy aircraft carrier Intrepid, which served from 1943 until 1974. We also have a Cold War submarine, a British Airways Concorde, and the Space Shuttle Enterprise. And our mission is to promote the awareness and understanding of history, science, and service in order to honor our heroes, educate the public, and inspire our youth. And so within that mission, our role is to ensure that this ship built during World War II is made accessible to all. That comes with challenges, but also tremendous opportunities. This is a historic artifact itself, and therefore any visit is an immersive experience. So for example, the way the sound reverberates around the hangar deck which goes almost the full 900 foot length of the ship with 20 foot high ceilings, thick steel floors and steel walls and ceiling covered with pipes. 
this is where they stored and worked on the ship's 70 to 100 aircraft when it was in service. Or the lingering smell of diesel fuel in the submarine's narrow engine room packed with machinery. Or the warmth of the hot sun on the flight deck, reminiscent of the many deployments Intrepid's crew spent in hot climates around the equator. Or the challenge of raising your step and ducking your head, if you're a little taller than me, to make it through the hatch into the anchor chain room where you can try to budge the anchor chains as long as the there as long as the Empire State Building with each link weighing 120 pounds. So visiting the Intrepid Museum is a full sensory experience, um, as Joel was, was describing earlier. Of course, though, there are real barriers. Many of the artifacts are fragile and are kept behind glass. Much of the information both directional and educational, is relayed through text panels and signs. And while some preserved spaces like the Anchorage chain room are open, others are behind glass. So this is where audio and verbal description comes into play. We want to ensure that all visitors, including those who are blind or have low vision, have equitable opportunities for engagement and choice in how they do so. For that reason, we have description available through both self-guided resources and guided tours. So for those interested in a self-guided visit, we offer a tactile guide with talking pen available to borrow at no cost. The guide is spiral bound and it includes raised line images of the museum spaces for wayfinding with, Im with raised images of key artifacts. Users can press the tip of the talking pen against any of these raised images the name, a detailed description, and then additional context and interpretation, similar to what may be on the label or in the general audio guide. We've gotten great feedback on it, um, and we're very happy to, to have it available, um, though I know that not everyone wants to carry something around, and it is also a bit challenging for us to update ourselves. Now, during our closure in the summer of 2020, we were concerned about visitors crowding around labels when we reopened. We were also grappling with how to handle concerns about the virus spreading through shared objects, particularly audio guides. Our audio guide was an outdated one that we'd been looking to replace for a while, but hadn't yet due to cost. One of my frustrations with the audio guide, which had been developed before at the museum before I arrived, was that it did not include audio description within it as a layer of information. So you could have the tactile guide with talking pen, or you could have the audio guide. Um, and they didn't necessarily match up with their content. Yeah. So during um, the closure, my colleagues at the museum and I collaborated with the New York University Ability Project to develop a bring your own device mobile guide in which we've wove, woven together label text, audio descriptions, audio guide content, and other media into this mobile site that anyone can access on their own smartphone or tablet with their preferred settings in place. We've also added wayfinding instructions. Our previously separate content and resources are finally coming together in one place and a platform that is easy and affordable for us to update ourselves. We've used digital text, so to screen reader accessible, and all videos include an introductory description. This is still a prototype, so we could add reported description in the future um, in addition to the written text. Um, you can find the mobile guide by visiting maps.intrepidmuseum.org. And I'll note that this is part of an IMLS-funded project we are heading up that we're leading on developing sensory tools for interpreting historic sites. And so sharing this as a resource for other museums and historic sites to use at their own locations 
is a key part of the project. Um, and we also definitely still have our tactile guide with chalking pen available to borrow for those who prefer that. Um, within our exhibits, we have started incorporating audio description um, in some of the ways that Joel was describing. The, the biggest example is our immersive multimedia video about a kamikaze attack on the ship. Visitors can borrow a headset from the nearby information desk to hear synchronized audio description along with the rest of the experience. But we know that these resources don't solve everything and also that some folks prefer a guided experience. So we offer verbal description and touch tours by advanced request at no additional cost. These are fully customized based on the interest of the visitor and we incorporate description and opportunities to handle models, replicas, and select artifacts, including some of the aircraft on display. So yes, weather permitting, you can go inside of a Coast Guard rescue helicopter. In these tours, educators strive to place the description within the context of the artifact's context, uh, significance and stories. These really are robust tours and they are a lot of fun for both the visitors and the educators. Um, and I will note that our Beyond site was part of that initial training. For New York City-based schools and organizations, we offer these programs at no cost and conclude a pre-visit at their site to introduce the museum and set expectations and we bring along models and replicas of what they of what they will uh, visit while at the museum. Now, since the start of the pandemic, we've also developed a number of virtual programs to help us stay connected with the public and continue our mission. Taking inspiration from other museums like the Guggenheim here in New York, I decided to start offering quarterly public ver virtual verbal description tours. Knowing that we wouldn't have the tactile opportunities we usually do, I decided to use this as an opportunity to focus on exhibits and spaces that have fewer tactile components, are not fully physically accessible, and or are temporary. So far, we've explored our temporary exhibit, Navy Cakes, A Slice of History. We've focused on our British Airways Concorde and learned about Intrepid's role in the space race. In these programs, we leave description of the artifacts with their context and stories. And I've been able to include recordings of oral histories and music that are difficult to play when in the cavernous museum. These are over Zoom and folks have the option to join via link or by calling in. I chunk out the tour so I go through a section and then pause for questions and storytelling by participants. This helps prevent interrupt interruptions and talking over one another while also making room for participation. It's been great to hear stories of Navy vets to remember special cakes they had during their service or if someone who actually got to ride on the Concorde before it, the planes were retired. We've connected with folks all the way from California to the United Kingdom and with folks just a few blocks away from the museum. And we do plan to continue these even, um, even though we have reopened. The next one will take place in late September and that information will be available soon. And if you'd like to learn more or be added to our uh, contact list, um, you can email me at access at intrepidmuseum.org. So thank you. And I look forward to taking your questions later. Wow. I, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit I have not been to the Intrepid, Charlotte, and I'm going to go now. That was fantastic. What a great, great place. Um, I want to mention, too, Charlotte mentioned the funding from IMLS, uh, just so people know, that's the Institute of Museum and Library Services, a federal agency. Uh, my office at the National Endowment of the Arts used to be the same building uh, as IMLS, uh, so I know them pretty well. Um, can I ask uh, Melissa, our uh, hostess, if you could just make sure I have access to chat so that I can put information in the chat. Uh, and uh, while you're working on that, we will move uh, north to Boston and uh, get uh, a little bit of information uh, from Jessica Doonan about herself, her work, and 
the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, a whole different kind of museum experience. Jessica. Thank you so much, Joel. I'm so excited to be joining all of you and being a part of this wonderful conference. So my name is Jessica Dunham. I use she, her pronouns, um, and I am a uh, 30-something white woman with short, curly, um, asymmetrical hair, <laughs> wearing a dark maroon v-neck shirt, dangly silver earrings, and I am in front of uh with all disclosure, the wall of my bedroom with multiple uh, pictures of artwork from different places. Um, additionally, um, in kind of the spirit of inclusion and belonging, um, it is uh, traditional for the Museum of Fine Arts to um, discuss, make a land acknowledgement. So while I am at my home, um, I just wanna note that the Museum of Fine Arts Boston is in Boston, Massachusetts. Founded in 1870, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston stands on the historic homelands of the Massachusetts people, a site which has long served as a place of meeting and exchange among nations. As a museum, we acknowledge the long history of the land we occupy today and seek ways to make indigenous narratives more prominent in our galleries and programming. We can all collectively learn about the Massachusetts people who continue to be stewards of this land by visiting massachusettribe.org. That's um, great. Je Jessica, I, that, that's, I'm so glad you added that, but I'm, I want to note for everybody that your asymmetrical hair is just the result of, you, you forgot to brush your hair this morning. Is that what, is that what happened? <laughs> I will I'm try sorry. not to, I'll try I'm not sorry. to have my, my hairdresser be offended by <laughs> the solid amount of work that he does. It is a short, asymmetrical <laughs> haircut. It takes a lot to maintain it. And it looks great. <laughs> Forgive the interruption. No, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> so Charlotte in her remarks noted how long she's been at the museum. So I think it's important to note that I've been at the Museum of Fine Arts since February. Um, so I've only been at the museum for now, if I do some quick math, four and a half, maybe five months. Um, I carry the work of Hannah Goodwin, who I know was a longstanding partner of ACB and the um, the audio um, the audio description project. One, she won one of our awards. Yes, uh, that is in my notes. Uh, yes, okay. As I as I moved offices, once I started, one of the many uh, awards that had her name on them, um, we received in July 2019 at the Rochester ACB conference. I imagine that to be the last in-person ACB conference that was had before COVID. Um, we received the achievement award in museums, visual arts, and. Um, visitor centers for our audio description. And so that's something that we take very seriously at the museum. Um, Joel had mentioned that we're a very different museum than the Intrepid. That is, that is very true. We are about 150 years old and we are one of the most comprehensive art museums in the world um, with almost half a million works of art. Um, they are not all on display at any given moment, but at any given moment, we have over 100 galleries and new exhibitions opening and closing every couple months, sometimes in rapid succession. Um, we have a, a gallery opening this weekend. We opened another gallery a couple weeks ago. Um, the rate at which we move art around and through is... Um, is a pace that I'm starting to starting to get used to. Um, I do not come from the museum world, 
Um, I come from disability world in government. And so uh, learning the museum world has been a, a great joy of mine. And so I'm really grateful for it. In regards to what we do for audio description, um, our longstanding commitment to audio description has included having hundreds of audio descriptions of artworks throughout the museum on a mobile guide. This allows for visitors to, uh, to explore the museum at their own pace on their own and um, get audio descriptions from each different gallery covering spans of centuries um, and many different mediums. When someone wants to interact um, with a guide, we have provided uh, tours with audio description on an individual request and on group requests, as well as a monthly drop-in tours. Those tours are conducted primarily by our amazing group of over 60 volunteers who uh, have been trained, um, trained by Hannah and will be trained by me um, moving forward on audio description, as well as many other modalities to really make an, an immersive experience. So we, we combine audio description with music, with sense, with touch. Um, we have many pieces of artwork that we've worked with the conservators on with gloves on that they can, that um, museum goers are able to touch, which is, I think, a, a highlight uh, for many people and a source of envy for many sighted visitors throughout the museum. Um, it's one of the few times that you see sighted people running over to you in a museum, and it's often because they think there's an opportunity that they can also touch things, um, which allows for uh, the, our blind and visually impaired visitors to become essentially celebrities, uh, being these individuals who get the special VIP treatment of touching artwork. We also have an extensive collection of tactiles that can range from um, small bottle caps to 3D exact replicas of pieces that we have behind glass or in paintings to allow for really an immersive experience in which we can explain um, act out and describe art all while making uh, the experience one that is curated to the individual's needs. Um, so especially within our individual requests and our tour requests, um, they are not standalone tours that we do for our population, but tours taking into consideration the interests of the visitors that are coming in. So if a visitor says that day, I'm looking to explore Egypt, we can make that happen, or if I'm looking to explore art primarily by women artists, our, uh, our volunteers work hard to give each individual the tour that they would like. Um, all of that has been primarily um, pre-COVID, which is also pre-my arrival at the museum. However, um, I did spend the last 10 years as one of Hannah's uh, trusted uh, volunteers. And so I've worked with the museum in that capacity, um, providing tours to visitors, and it has been a great joy. Um, so I'm thrilled to be a part of this team now in this different capacity. All of these tours are free, um, and we work with people to make sure that they, um, they get the services that they need from the moment they enter. Um, just a little interruption. Joel, uh, there isn't any way you can... Uh, it, it isn't possible to chat. chat. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's not possible. For I'll that. do it. I'll do it later on if, if it's yeah. possible. Thank All you. Right. Thank you, Melissa. No problem.
Go ahead. Uh, Thank you so much, please. Melissa. I'll make sure that when I give my email address and the phone number at the end that I'll, I reiterated a couple of times. Um, so during COVID, many of the, as everyone I think can relate to, all of our in-person um, programming had to be put on hold. But we in place um, contracted with IRA, the service that allowed, and that has allowed for visitors to navigate the museum independently by downloading the app on their phone and navigating that way as well. We've also ensured that there are still visitor services um, staff members who are there to assist with wayfinding as needed um, for individual galleries. And our mobile guide has been um, made available upon request, although we're working on phasing that out um, as, as it is older technology. So they are uh, typically on currently on iPods, which are losing steam and literal battery life um, probably as we speak. And so we are exploring what are opportunities similar to Charlotte. We had developed, we've developed a mobile guide um, that had kind of happened over the summer as a, as a need and the necessity of not wanting people to crowd around labels, um, wanting to stay separate, not sharing devices. Um, we're working on including accessibility more robustly within that in the same way that we did our mobile guide. Um, that has been a slower process, I think, due to COVID and also due to staffing shifts. Um, there was a point in time in which um, there was uh, no overlap between Hannah and myself, as well as some, um, some furloughing of staff last year. And so that has been a slower process, but we're really excited to get that really up and going. In addition to Ira, we have also continued to hold Zoom tours and really um, be able to continue to build community within our blind and visually impaired um, visitors and reach people that we had never reached before. So to your point, Joel, of reaching people who the transportation was too much of a barrier or too much of a hassle or just something that someone want, didn't want to do. And not wanting to go somewhere is something I, I think everyone can relate to. Um, and so we are we're looking at the ways that our Zoom touring can continue um, past the pandemic when we have in-person touring as well. Um, our Zoom tours are both on a monthly drop-in basis and um, individual requests. Our next, um, our next Zoom tour um, for the community with description is actually next weekend. It was supposed to be this weekend, but we moved it because it conflicted uh, with this and we thought, then maybe people might be more interested in going to the ACB conference. Um, but our next descriptive Zoom tour will be on folk, or, folk art on Saturday, July 24th from 3 to 4.15 Eastern time. And to RSVP for that, people can email access at mfa.org or call 617-369 3189. Additionally, if you go to the access page on the Museum of Fine Arts website, which is mfa.org, you can get at least some sort of contact information there that will reach us. And if you just let us know that you want to join the descriptive tour, we can make that happen. Um, I'm excited to answer any questions. That's um, great. Thank you, Jessica. I have one question quickly, because you said uh, you have over 60 docents or guides 
Isn't that right? And I wasn't sure you were indicating that you have 60, 70, 80 docents versus all your docents are over 60 years old. Well, as someone who had been a docent um, and who, at least in her verbal description, claimed 30-something. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, that, yeah. that you clarified that. My daughter was 16 years old and was a docent at the National Museum of Women in the Arts uh, here in Washington, D.C., their youngest docent ever. Well, she was a teen docent program, and we're really excited to start working with there them this go. summer to talk there about how to do accessibility. But it's 60 docents specifically related to access. That's great. Hundreds of docents. And, and um, some are, are young folks, like yes. 30 or 40 or something young. Anyway, I can say that. I want to hear now about the Olympics and the Paralympics and uh, the marvelous, really quite new museum in Colorado Springs, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum. And Robert Brady is going to tell us all about it. Robert? Thank you for the introduction, Joel. Uh, first and foremost, it's a uh, it's a privilege to be here with you all today. It's a beautiful summer day. I'm actually coming to you from Denver, Colorado today in, uh, uh overlooking Congress Park in my girlfriend's violin studio. Um, there's a bustling <laughs> farmer's market outside. We went and picked up some peaches and tomatoes earlier this morning, um, and it's just gorgeous <laughs> to be here in Colorado uh, but the topic at hand today is Colorado Springs uh, for me. Um, to give a, a descriptive introduction of myself, I'm 33 years old, um, brunette, white man wearing a royal blue uh, button-down shirt, rimmed glasses, and uh, a thick, uh, if I could say, well-manicured beard today. Um, and we're going to be talking about the United States Olympic and Paralympic Museum which is the newest addition to Colorado Springs travel and tourism landscape. And to know the museum is to know Olympic City USA, is to know Team USA's involvement in the Olympic and Paralympic Games, it's to know RFID technology and universal design. Um, but I wanna talk about the history briefly of the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the training center and the museum and the IOC's initiative to have all 204 countries who participate in the modern Olympic and Paralympic Games to build a museum to tell their athletes stories and their involvement, which is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And we honor those who, uh, who have competed under the Stars and Stripes. So in 1968 in Mexico City, uh, which still stands as the highest, Olympic, uh, highest elevation Olympic Games to date at over 7,000 feet, uh, in 1968, there was very little for Team USA to hang their hat on other than a um, uh, very memorable long jump that still stands by Bob Beeman today. And this is in the middle of the Cold War. And it was very important for Team USA to have um, a strong showing globally. And so coming out of the Mexico City Games, the United States Olympic Committee, uh, it was not known as the USOPC as it is now, it was just the USOC made the decision to move from New York to Colorado Springs that sits at about 6,300 feet elevation and is uh, most notable for being at the foot of Pikes Peak, which is the furthest east 14er or 14,000 foot mountain in the United States and is home to Garden of the Gods, the second most visited city park in the U.S. other than Central Park in New York. Um, and they purchased an old Air Force installation, Ent Air Force Base, on the east side of town off Union Boulevard for $1.00. And they had the intent of converting it to the United States Olympic Training Center. Uh, 
now known as the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. And so Olympic City USA is what Colorado Springs has been branded as. And sitting at the corner of Tejon and Colorado Avenue in the middle of downtown Colorado Springs is the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's headquarters. Um, and a few miles away is the training center. And in 2013, this concept was born to build the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum uh, as a part of a piece of Colorado, state of Colorado legislation called the City for Champions Project that also brought um, a soccer stadium, a hockey arena, um, and soon to be in the new Air Force Academy Visitor Center to Colorado Springs. Um, we are a $92 million narrative arc experience. And the archive of artifacts that has been maintained at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee headquarters has been moved to our facility, as has the Team USA Hall of Fame. What you experience today is about a two-hour journey starting uh, with the ancient games and ending with a medal ceremony um, that takes you through 13 different galleries entirely based on universal design. So we certainly had a heightened importance to, uh, for accessibility because of our relationships with our relationship with the Paralympics and the Paralympics, the para stands for parallel. They run in parallel to the Olympic games two weeks after the conclusion of the games. Uh, so, for example, um, the Olympic Games will be running from Friday, July 23rd through Sunday, August 8th, two weeks afterwards. Uh, the Paralympics will kick off in Tokyo. And the Paralympic Games are generally made of adaptive sports, but are rapidly growing with their own um, set of, of competitions. For example, uh, goalball being the most famous um, Paralympic sport for blind athletes. It's a three-on-three -three game played on a nine-by-18-meter uh, volleyball-sized court um, where every athlete is, um, is non-sighted. The ball is um, audible. There's bells inside of a, a thick rubber ball that's thrown um, at a nine-meter-wide uh, nine goal. Uh, and the crowd is required to remain silent to allow the athletes to hear the audible noise throughout the entire um, uh, set of competition. So we worked with the, uh, when we designed um, the museum, uh, we worked with our design architect, Elizabeth Diller. We worked with the Institute, the Institute of Human Centered Design, and we worked with the um, museum designers at Gallagher and Associates in um, Washington, D.C. to create a narrative arc experience um, that was accessible to all visitors. And so universal design was championed in this project, uh, as was RFID as our medium to deliver our accessibility elements. And so audio descriptions are incorporated in every element of the museum triggered by an RFID credential. So when guests purchase a ticket or they come to pick up their ticket at the will call desk, a guest experience team member hands them an RFID credential. And for those who aren't familiar with RFID technology, it's an older technology, 25, 30 years old. It's gone through several different iterations now. We utilize ultra high frequency RFID tags worn in a very attractive two and a half by five inch um, credential that's worn on a lanyard. And um, as a beginning to every visitor's journey, they go through a brief registration process where each RFID credential is registered uh, based on the visitor's Olympic and Paralympic sport preferences. So you get to choose your favorite summer game sport and your favorite winter game sport. So you may select track and field or you may select para-alpine skiing. 
Um, and then you can select one of four accessibility features to be delivered based on your RFID credential. So if you uh, would like to adjust your font size, contrast, you'd like to add a screen reader, or most importantly and most powerful for um, uh, our blind or visually impaired visitors, you can select audio descriptions directly on your RFID credential. And using tactile strips on the floor and um, looping audio medallions at the beginning of each gallery, if you have selected audio descriptions with your credential that you are wearing on a lanyard, uh, it sits about mid-chest, walking into a gallery will trigger an audible audio description that will give you an introduction to that gallery, what to expect, and um, where to go next. In addition to that, every interactive in the building um, features the same technology that will describe uh, all of our artifacts and exhibits on display to the user. Um, this RFID technology is pretty tried and true and uh, is one of the things that really makes us unique. In addition to that, every guest rides an elevator to the third floor. You'll work your way down through thir 13 different galleries as you go on this linear path uh, through the museum. Uh, there's a gentle grade that connects each gallery to the next. Uh, so for guests that are in wheelchairs, you'll never have to push uphill uh, in the museum after riding the elevator up. Um, we have assisted listening devices that are available for complimentary checkout that mirror the audio descriptions, just gives you a more direct headphone-based um, experience. We're also a sensory inclusive attraction, so we have the ability to trigger low sensory shows um, for those uh, that have visual sensitivities. Um, and we offer daily guided tours, 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. daily. There is a 60-minute storytelling experience where a guide takes you through the history of the ancient games, the introduction of the modern Olympics, the introduction of the Winter Olympics in 1924, the introduction of the Paralympic Games in 1960, and they will really bring to life a lot of the um, stories that are on display. I want to talk about some of the cool stuff, though, briefly. <laughs> so this is a high-tech, high-touch museum, y'all. And it, we had to pivot to be contactless um, during COVID. Um, but the interactivity of each of uh, each gallery is really quite stark, especially in our athlete training gallery. So we have a, an experience that guests enter. It's, it's our, the fourth gallery that you encounter in your journey uh, that can be approached by both sighted and non-sighted guests to participate in each one. So there are six different hands-on interactive experiences. We have a running track where you're able to run against uh, Jesse Owens, Carmelita Jeter. You're able to run against David Brown, who is a blind Team USA track and field athlete. We have a goal ball interactive where guests can wear a blindfold and you are, it simulates blocking shots um, on a goal ball court. Um, there's a strategy game that you can play for sled hockey. We have a skeleton simulator that is completely audible where you actually lay down on a skeleton um, uh, skate and using um, audible cues, you're able to go down a one minute track and blind guests can actually ride a skeleton down. Uh, we have an Alpine skiing interactive that also uses audio descriptions and an uh, archery interactive as well. So there are six different um, scores that you that you add up during your visit. Um, 
Lastly, there is a, uh, our experience culminates in a 10 minute film called to take part um, that is narrated by team USA athletes like Mary Lou Retton, Apollo Ono, Michael Phelps, uh, Brad Snyder, uh, Cindy Castellano and others that um, talks about the agony and the ecstasy of making a games, not making a games, meddling, not meddling, getting injured, um, overcoming adversity. Um, and it's a place that is visited by Olympic and Paralympic athletes on a daily basis. We do autograph sessions and meet and greets with athletes, both Olympic and Paralympic athletes on a daily basis. And during your visit, uh, we actually have Olympic and Paralympic athletes that work in the museum on the floor as paid guest experience team members daily. Um, and just to tell you about where we are right now, uh, approaching the Tokyo games, uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of our Paris swimmers was at work, took a phone call, um, from the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee to say that she had just made team USA and the whole museum broke out into, into applause. It was incredible. Um, so I would highly encourage everyone to, Coordinate a visit to Colorado Springs when you can. Um, come see us. Uh, but most importantly, um, or in the short term, uh, we're going to be hosting uh, a big Tokyo Games fan fest and watch party uh, here in a week or two. And uh, NBC will be doing some live look-ins um, and some cutovers to correspondents here at the museum because there are no spectators in Tokyo. And so we're a domestic alternative for games viewing. Um, and so you'll hear uh, and see about the museum on the NBC broadcast. Wow. <laughs> I have to say, wow, again, that's that's just great, Robert. Thank you so much. Uh, I do want to ask about the skeleton now. Um, some people may not know, because I, I, at first I thought, you want me to lie down on a skeleton? You mean like with the bones and the <laughs> whole? But I think you mean a, a particular kind of thing that that people That's right. ride. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so there's uh, in the Winter Olympics, um, and uh, right now there are, I believe only eight ice tracks in the world. Uh, one is in Lake Placid. One is in Salt Lake City here in the U.S. Um, but you have four man bobsled, two man bobsled, okay. skeleton, and luge. And imagine going 80 to 90 miles an hour head first on a very small platform with two skates, two rails that <laughs> flying down an ice track. And um, in our skeleton simulator that guests lie on, whether you're sighted or non-sighted, um, there are kind of audio cues uh, that kind of help you uh, stay on the right line uh, as you wow. choose your line down this ice track. It's yeah. Kind of cool. I think I'll pass on that, Robert. Thank you so much. Because uh, <laughs> I'm I'm just a sissy. And I, well, anyway, I do want to say that uh, I, I've got to say that uh, I'm quite proud that my company, Audio Description Associates, uh, provided the written descriptions, the writing for, the, for much of the audio description. So uh, uh, definitely, I, I think everybody in the audience now is going to start, they're going to start making plans to go to New York, Boston, and Colorado Springs. Oh, yeah. Uh, this has been fantastic. You know, I uh, mentioned earlier that I, I have a few questions, but you guys were so thorough in your presentations, you talked about uh, the impact the COVID uh, pandemic has had. Uh, all of you did. Um, all the different uh, access techniques that you had. Your presentations were so thorough, thorough, and even cost and transportation and that sort of thing um, was addressed. So, what I'd like to do now in the um, 
about 25 minutes remaining is to open it up to the floor and Melissa maybe you can help if we if I can't do chat then maybe people can simply unmute and ask questions is that what you recommend yep that's the primary way attendees can interact with okay. the panelists okay and then um I will, um, and I'm sure the panelists too will also mention some of the URLs that they wanted to share. But let's start with any questions. Do we have any questions, Melissa? Diana, you may talk. This is uh, this is such a lovely presentation. Thank you so much. Um, my comments are first uh, that um, I visited the Intrepid many years ago with my sons. They were teenagers at the time. And uh, I'm very glad to know that now for my grandson, of course, he's fully sighted, but this is very exciting. If I want to go along um, and vi revisit the museum, that will be audio description because even though I am a partial, um, some things are pretty um, difficult for me to see or they have to be described. Sure. So I, I really appreciate that information. It's great. Um, the um, Museum of Fine Arts, I have been there a couple of times, a few times, actually. And I have to say <laughs> um, that um, the audio description, I mean, the, the guided tour, the recorded tour, it's amazing. And uh, the first time I went there was many years ago when I saw the Monet exhibit that brought in all the Monet um, paintings from the, uh, the uh, water lilies together from private collectors and other museums in the world. And I saw that with all the audio description and all wow. the Monet exhibit. It was just amazing. I'll never forget that. So I know, and the second time I went, yes, I, I visited the museum again a couple of years ago, and uh, I also used the the, the audio guide. Uh, I didn't uh, have a time to schedule the the, the guide with the, the, the tour, with the guide, but next time I'll go for sure, maybe this summer I'll do that again. Now, um, wow. I'm very excited also. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm very excited also with the museum in Colorado Springs. Uh, especially now with the Olympics. And um, of course, I always think about um, myself, but uh, going along with my grandson, because even though he's fully sighted, and of course my son's fully sighted, for me, it would be just to interact with them and experience whatever they are experiencing. Of course. Uh, yeah, Diana, so that is, great. That is wonderful. You. What, what, what fantastic testimonials uh, for, for you, Jessica, and for Charlotte. Uh, wow. Yes. Uh, I have on the screen here the uh, URLs for Art Beyond Sight, and they're kind of lengthy. I think the best thing to do is simply uh, artbeyondsight.org and uh, just browse, and you'll find information uh, about their programs. Uh, I also have up here uh, the uh, Museum of Fine Arts Descriptive Zoom Tour. Folk art, I'm uh, just gonna reiterate that, July 24th, 3 to 4.15 p.m. Eastern time. And to RSVP, you can uh, write to access, A-C-C-E-S-S -S, at mfa.org or call 617-369-3189. And uh, I don't wanna leave uh, uh, Charlotte out. Uh, you can go uh, and learn more about the Intrepid at access at Intrepid Museum org, And they actually have a, a, a verbal description, uh, I guess, demonstration or uh, more information, intrepidmuseum.org slash education slash verbal dash description. So let's go to our next uh, 
Question, um, uh, Melissa. Just one second. I have I have just one uh, okay. question. Okay, sure. Here we've got the, people waiting. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Just so the, about the IRA thing and the M and uh, the MFA. Uh, is that something that will be um, ongoing uh, for a long time? Or is just now with the pandemic? That's a question because I use IRA in the okay. all the time. Yes. Thank you so much, Diana. Um, I believe that we are we're hoping to have it go beyond the pandemic. We're just looking at uh, funding and contracts. Uh, it is our hope. It is our hope to have it ongoing. Great. Great. Yeah, and I, sure. I assume a lot of that, Jessica, is directional information, although I've done some workshops with them on audio description techniques. Uh, but it's certainly uh, a real boon uh, to have them available to help people get around. Yeah, well. yeah, it's absolutely helpful. Um, we prefer we prefer our volunteers since they've been trained to describe exactly. our IRA is exactly. particularly helpful with That's the right. wayfinding um, and independent navigating of the museum. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's get another question in there, uh, Melissa. Todd. Joel, if you don't, my comment is solely for you. I mean, okay. wrong, I appreciated everybody else's description, but you sound, your voice sounds like you're, did you do the recording, <laughs> the, the audio description tour for the Teddy Roosevelt Museum? In, no, uh, <laughs> no not, not that one. Uh, I voiced, uh, wrote and vo my company wrote and I voiced the tour at the FDR Museum in Hyde Park, but not the Teddy Roosevelt Museum. I'd love to go there, though. But thank you. I, I assume you liked it. <laughs> I loved it. I, I loved it. I never knew they had polio until I read the tour. That was pretty How cool. About that? Yeah. Thank you. you just, I, OK, great. You, 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 Thanks, Todd. That's great. Yeah. Next question. Janet. Please go ahead and unmute. Great, great program. And in, in England, the British Museum, they um, do audio, they let you feel things like the Rosetta Stone in the sure. Lake of in Israel. You can feel behind the stanchions, the walls of King Ahasuerus Temple. And I know, I know, I never told you, Joel, that in uh -huh. Tuckerton, New York, um, there's three museums at the headquarters of Jehovah's Witnesses, the history of the Bible, the history of Christianity, and they're audio described with headsets, too. Fantastic. Well, so you know, we're trying. Thank you. Janet's been a part of our Audio Description Institute and uh, a big advocate for description. So. Oh, for years, yes. Thank you. And, thank and you. you've done so much, Joel, for this, this field, and thank well. you for it all. Thank you. Yeah, more so taking much. your class in August. Two more. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's people like Jessica and Robert and and Charlotte that are really doing the access. I'm trying to get the word out and advocate want, as much as I can. But I want to get to Colorado and Boston now. Yes. I, I used to live across the street from the Intrepid. We'd walk down the block and my husband said, there it is in front of us in the New Jersey <laughs> side. But I, I never toured it. I can, you know, you, you live close to home and you never do it. There you go. Uh, well, you'll do it now. That's great. Thank you, Janet. Okay. That's great. Who's who's next, uh, Melissa? Clark, please go ahead and unmute. Hello. There, oh, Clark Rockwell. Yes, I know here this guy. I am. Sorry there you are, that. Melissa. Thank you so much, and Joel. Thank you for this great program. Oh, thanks, Clark. Um, I have visited the. Uh, the USOPM in Colorado Springs. I managed wow. to get there last September and congratulations to the USOPM wow. for coming up on your one year anniversary. Um, I've not made it to the Intrepid or the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, but they are on the list. 
Uh, quick comment. So uh, Robert from Colorado Springs, I, I'll just add that in 1968, there is a very memorable moment from those games for the U.S. involving the civil rights movement, uh, Tommy Smith and John yes. Carlos. And that is memorialized at the Smithsonian uh, Museum of African-American History with a mock podium and everything. So I'd, I'd say that's another memorable moment from those games. Uh, but my question is, geez, uh, for I guess for anyone on the panel that wants to answer, if there are other museums out there that want to increase and enhance their accessibility, what recommendations do, do the panelists have for them? Thank you, and I will go back on mute. Thanks, Clark. Jessica, uh, uh, yeah. Robert, sure, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Clark, by the way, um, I was hoping that I'd have a chance to make your acquaintance at some point. Um, for those that don't know Clark on the call, he is a Paralympian himself cyclist. And uh, this is your museum in Colorado Springs. And I have, I know that you've visited, but I have not had a chance to meet you in person. And, and a and top staff to member, yes. top staff member at the American Council of the Blind. Absolutely. Yeah. And Michelle Farrell, uh, Michelle DeSera Farrell sends her regards, uh, Clark. So RFID is the medium that we've chosen to deliver um, audio descriptions to our visitors that come through uh, the building. And I would, I would encourage um, guests, whether it be Beacon Technology or RFID Technology, um, to, uh, to encourage um, you to think about a retrofit for, uh, for something that will allow a personalization element and to trigger a, an audio description on a guest behalf based on proximity. So proximity-based audio descriptions, whatever the medium is for technology, right. that's, that's what I would have to plug today. Yeah. Jessica, or I'm not sure if we lost Charlotte. Maybe she can get us back. Again. I'm back. Oh, there you are, Charlotte. Charlotte. I am back. Wonderful. I yeah, can technical you, difficulties. That's okay. That's okay. Can you speak to uh, Clark's uh, question about how to encourage other museums to uh, get on board with accessibility? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I always feel very lucky being in New York because I am surrounded by so many other wonderful museums. Um, that have really invested in access. I mean, everyone's at different stages of the process. Um, but one of the things that I think has been really valuable for, for myself and my team, as well as our colleagues, um, is that um, a number of cities and regions have local cultural accessibility networks. And those have been really valuable for promoting accessibility, as well as for getting the word out to um, you know, people who are interested in visiting these organizations. So in New York City, we have um, MAC, which is the Museum Arts and Culture Access Consortium. Um, there's a version in Chicago. Um, there are ones in New England. They're, they're all over the country. And so that's been a really valuable way of promoting accessibility um, in, in cultural organizations, museums, performance spaces, and others. Um, and so I think that's one way um, of you know, encouraging museums to reach out to their organizations or connecting them with those local networks can be really valuable. Um, and also I would say to museums is just, you know, look at who's coming and who's not coming and really, you know, talk to the people in your surrounding area, reach out to your community and make that effort um, to connect. And I think having, you know, bringing on advisors um, or, you know, having conversations with people to get that started and figure out where those gaps are and where the opportunities are is just a really great way to start that. That's great. Jessica, some thoughts on, on that as well? 
Um, yeah, I think Charlotte made some great points. Um, we, in New England and in Massachusetts, we have both cultural councils and um, just kind of a consortium of um, access and arts individuals. But I think also, um, and this speaks to accessibility in general and not just audio description, but um, starting somewhere is better than doing nothing. And so I think oftentimes people get stuck in, if I can't do everything, then I shouldn't start. Yeah. Yeah. Or I should start when I have the funding and the availability and the staffing to do everything. Yeah. And if you wait for that, it's just never going to happen. And so starting small and uh, reaching out to the community, seeing what the community is interested in, uh, seeking community input and advice and expertise, um, but starting small, starting somewhere, somewhere is better than nowhere. Um, yeah, and not being great. afraid to admit that this is where you're starting yeah. and that you can grow from there and evolve from there, but you are starting to make an effort. Yeah, I would also mention uh, our website, the Audio Description Project website, acb.org slash ADP. Lots of information, uh, primarily about media description, but there's a good bit on uh, museums and performing arts as well and how to get started. You can certainly contact uh, me, uh, Jay Snyder at acb.org, uh, and I can steer you that way. But I also want to mention that, you know, in the spirit of nothing about us without us, uh, you know, I would encourage lovers of art, people who are blind or have low vision, uh, to to get in touch with not only the museums themselves, but get in touch with the American Alliance of Museums. I was fortunate enough to do a panel for them at their most recent conference. I think that got the word going a little bit, but contact the museums because when they develop audio described tours or other kinds of access techniques, they should involve you. They should talk to you. Uh, and whenever we develop a tour at my company, we always hire a, a consumer of description who's experienced with description uh, to, to help guide us in the scripting, uh, in directional information. We actually take them to the museum and uh, have them walk it and, and let us know how we did. So um, there's some, some other ideas. Melissa, another question? Yeah. Bob, please go ahead and unmute. Hi there, this is Bob. I'm from Santa Cruz, California. Very, very good presentation. I, I really enjoyed it and appreciate you all taking your time. Thanks. Um, um, I know you mentioned the ACB website, which I use a lot for looking up movies and that sort of thing. But um, is there a, a place we can go to, um, maybe in addition to ACB, to, to, to locate all of these places around the country that have these wonderful audio described museums. I'd, I'd love to go explore all of these. I just don't know sure. where to go to start to look for them. Right. Well, actually, uh, Bob, on the audio description project website, um, if you click on, uh, I believe it's at, toward the top, click uh, museums, we have a state by state listing of museums that we know about that have audio description, that have tactile experiences available, other kinds of access techniques. Uh, so that would be the, the first thing I would recommend. Uh, and actually, I'm going to 
you know, I've got a slide up here that has everybody's uh, email addresses. I'm putting up, uh, again, artbeyondsight.org. That organization also has information about museums uh, and what they offer uh, and samples of verbal description as well. Or they call it verbal description. I call it audio description. Uh, but there are samples there that you can listen to. Uh, I've contributed a number of descriptions uh, that we did for the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, for instance. So uh, those are the two resources, the museums tab uh, at the Audio Description Project website and then artbeyondsight.org. Thank you, Jay. You bet. Who's next, Melissa? Chris, please go ahead and unmute. Hey, just a comment. What a great presentation. So happy I, I came across your session. Thanks. And really get a lot from your Audio Description Project and things. And um, I, I definitely want to just a, a quick comment about the um, Colorado Springs, uh, the Olympic and Paralympic tour. My daughter just moved there. And if I had not gone to the session, I was a little uh, hesitant on flying back to go see her before you know the school year kicks off and everything. But um, I think we're going to do that now. Oh, by going yeah. to the session. You're hearing about these, these great, um, great opportunities. And just to double check, uh, we're all back and open, no, no COVID restrictions, or is there a mask or what, what's that look like for that, that facility? So El Paso County and the state of Colorado, we are back open with no restrictions. Uh, we actually worked directly with the county health commissioner, uh, Dr. Leon Kelly, throughout the entire COVID process. So even when we went to level red and uh, other facilities were required to shut down because of the RFID technology and the venue intelligence capability we had behind it and the fact that we were a narrative arc attraction where you're going from one gallery to the next without swimming upstream. Right. Um, we were kind of held up as a community asset and encouraged to stay open. Um, sure. So no restrictions. Masks are required for those who are not vaccinated or not fully vaccinated. Um, but guests and staff who are fully vaccinated no longer have to wear masks. You also will be issued a uh, keepsake touchscreen stylus uh, to use throughout your journey so that you don't uh, have to uh, come in contact with any of the interactives uh, during your visit if you don't want to. But we're, we're really wide cool. open. Yep. And I would highly encourage you to jump on one of those guided tours. Um, there is limited availability, but there's two times daily. And that's in addition to your standard uh, self-guided experience. It's just a deeper dive into the history of the Olympic and Paralympic Games. That's, that's great. That's seven days a week? Seven days a week. Awesome. Awesome. Bring Thanks. your daughter. Bring your daughter, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. So thanks, guys. Thanks. Who's next, Melissa? John? I'm so glad, Joel, that you uh, clarified the skeleton question. <laughs> <laughs> Is this John and Ray? John anyway, the presentation raises a lot of questions in yeah. my mind. Um, and I hope that I understood the presentation about the uh, Boston Museum, that you have individual audio tours. I will be in touch with you, believe me. But my question, Joel, is to you and to all the panel, and I may sound like a bit of a heretic today, as someone, as you know, who loves and promotes audio description, um, as audio description in museums increases, and that's a good thing, does it make it easier for museums not to allow us 
to touch things? Does it does it lead to less tactile access? Because for me as a blind person, tactile access is what I really am interested in more than anything else. There, to me, there's no substitute to tactile access. And I'm just curious what uh, uh, people can tell me about the, the direction of the industry, not just your own facilities. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a great question, John. Charlotte, do you want to respond? To, has there been a trend that you've noticed of less tactile work or haptic work? Sure. Yeah. No, thank you for asking that and for sharing that. Um, this is Charlotte from the Interactive Museum. And um, it's not something I've, I, I will say that during the initial phases of the pandemic, when there was a lot of concern about how the virus was spread, um, that there was a lot of concern about um, tactiles. Like, was this virus being spread through touch? I'm going to interrupt here and say you you have about five minutes. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Uh, I'll make this brief. So that that was a concern. And I will say initially we had, when we reopened for the first time in the fall, we did block off some of those tactile elements. Um, But I am happy to say that now all of our tactiles are reopened. Um, We're cleaning things really robustly. and I'll say, like, I can't speak for all museums. One thing that has happened is that my team, you know, we're the access team, we've always used a lot of touch in our programming and teaching. And, you know, through kind of collaborating more with colleagues on other teams within the education department and through trainings, I think we actually made the rest of the educators in our department really excited about the potential for touch and how powerful it is as a, as a teaching tool and as an experiential tool that it's actually grown a lot over the years. So even though we've increased our description, so we've also increased um, the opportunities to touch and have continued to bring in elements for that. I think that's right. Um, It all all comes together, really. It all goes together and meshes. Uh, I haven't heard much about a a decrease outside of the COVID uh, parameters. I haven't heard of a decrease in tactile because there's more audio description. Would you would you agree, Jessica? Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think that um, when you, at least in my discussions talking to curators, I think that they believe that description isn't a substitution for touching things, um, especially when it's a sculpture. Um, they're very much of the belief of yes, we can we can do our best to describe every detail, but there is something so universally understood by touching something. Um, And I think that's especially how we get, um, we work with many curators. We have um, just so much art and so many different places. And so our curators across the board, that's really how we get get stakeholders is explaining that actually the thing that we want to do is we want to be able to touch the art. And that's the thing that everybody can understand. Yeah. More so than painting word pictures and giving access through audio description, um, touch is a very clear, understandable piece. And then I think there's also, with the technology increasing audio description, there's also the, te- uh, the technology increasing in uh, the ability to touch things and or the ability to replicate, make exact models. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wow. Uh, you know, what I'm coming away with here is that the museums today 
they ain't they ain't your grandpa's museums anymore you know they are embracing accessibility and that's what we're hearing from jessica and, Sh and charlotte and robert um if you have other questions i encourage you to uh, send us a note because we're right up against the time here my own website is audiodescribe.com i can be reached at jsnyder at audiodescribe.com or jsnyder at acb.org jessica dunan is at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston at jdoonan, D-O-O-N-A-N, at mfa.org. Charlotte at the Intrepid, C. Martin at intrepidmuseum.org. And Robert Brady uh, in Colorado Springs at R-B-E, excuse me, I'll start again, R-B-R-E-A-D-Y at usopm.org. Don't forget the audio description project website, acb.org slash ADP. Thank you, Jessica, Charlotte, and Robert. I, I think this has been a great session, and I think our listeners have enjoyed it too. Thanks so much.